coming up. What's it like to be a schizophrenic? To hear voices in the head commanding you to do strange things. Must have the precious. To have paranoid delusions. They stole it from us. Sneaky little orbits. To reason in incoherent, hard to follow ways. Not listening. Not listening. You're a liar. A Schizophrenia as a window into the darker reaches of the human mind. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. What, if anything, can the study of schizophrenia teach us about the way that our normal, intact minds work? Our guest is John Campbell from the University of California, Berkeley. Schizophrenia and the Mind, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, schizophrenia and the mind. Ken, imagine trying to carry on a conversation with me while at the same time you're surrounded by four other people. They're talking loudly to you, uh, often about thoughts you might have considered private. That's an exercise support groups often use to suggest to family members what it's like to be schizophrenic. Wow, that sounds awful and confusing and overwhelming. It's, it's a problem that affects about one out of 200 people. It is a serious mental disorder that typically involves distortions in perception, like the auditory hallucinations I've just alluded to, and also bizarre and paranoid delusions. The uh, best-known portrayal of schizophrenia is probably the movie A Beautiful Mind, which uh, that's a movie inspired by the true life story of John Nash, who was a mathematician who, who won a Nobel Prize in economics. Russell Crowe played uh, Nash in that movie. It was a great movie. In that movie, Nash's hallucinations, though, were portrayed as simultaneously auditory, visual, and tactile, and really overwhelming. But that's not really all that common, as I understand it. And it wasn't really true with Nash, like most schizophrenics, his hallucinations were purely auditory. Troubling enough, but not as bad as those. There, there is some controversy among experts about whether schizophrenia is just a label for a bundle of commonly co-occurring symptoms or gets at some single underlying disease. Nevertheless, although there are no laboratory tests for schizophrenia, there are some pretty good medications based on the fact that it's frequently associated with excess dopamine, a neurotransmitter in the brain. You say there are some pretty good medications, and I take that to be true, but Nash, in real life, and in the movie, preferred not to take the medication. I think that's very common, partly because of the side effects and partly because schizophrenics also often believe that the medication is part of a conspiracy which, which they refuse to go along. For philosophers, schizophrenia is particularly interesting for a couple of reasons. Schizophrenics often think that the thoughts they're directly aware of, the thoughts in their own minds, belong to someone else. Sometimes they just mean the thoughts come from outside, often in bizarre ways, like through radio transmissions connected with their fillings, uh, and that they can't control these thoughts. But sometimes they mean more than that, that the thoughts themselves actually and literally belong to someone else. Now try to think your way into this. You're directly, introspectively aware of a thought. There's a thought. But then you think, whose thought is that? Not mine. That's philosophically puzzling. That's really puzzling. 
Schizophrenics also challenge a picture of thought that, that many philosophers find compelling. Uh, to, to attribute thoughts to a person seems to involve some connection between the world around them, what they see and pick up in perception, uh, and, and what they believe. But, but in the case of schizophrenics, the, the conclusions they come to are so disconnected from the evidence that this picture breaks down. Yeah, we, uh, philosophers like to think that thought, uh, having thought requires a bit of rationality, right? And schizophrenics beliefs are often really bizarrely irrational seeming. But, you know, that pre presupposes uh, that, that, that there's another problem. That raises an ethical problem, this irrationality. We think it's okay, for example, in the case of children or old folks with dementia, to violate their autonomy, their right to make their own decisions, like by, say, forcing them to take their medication. Now, Schizophrenia, schizophrenics are often motivated by extremely bizarre beliefs, beliefs that seem irrational. But here's the problem. In light of their bizarre beliefs, a lot of their refusal to take medication, it seems pretty rational. I mean, if you believe that these people were conspirators, you wouldn't want to take your medication either. So here's the question. Is it all right for us to violate their autonomy because their beliefs are irrational? Or should we respect their autonomy because their beliefs are rational in light of their, their beliefs? W which is it? What should we do? In a bit, we'll, we'll get some light shed on this when we talk with John Campbell from the philosophy department at Berkeley. He's thought and written deeply about schizophrenia. And we want our listeners to join in this conversation, too. The number to call is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Rena Palta, shed some light on what it's like to live with schizophrenia. She files this report. It's just, it's just get total darkness. If you ever, you're in a room or you close your eyes and you can't see anything, that's what it's like when, we, when I get when, when my episode, when I'm in an episode. It's total, it's total darkness. Thomas Jefferson, a San Francisco native, has schizophrenia. When he enters what's ominously called a psychotic episode, a few things start to happen. My body starts to hurt. Um, I don't sleep. I won't, I won't eat. Inside Jefferson's head, it gets loud. Very loud. Like, like in a war movie, heck of bombs going off. It's just really chaotic. That's what it's like, that's what it's like in my head. It's like a bunch of, bunch of bombs, boom, 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 all kind of stuff is going on. But it'd be voices, a lot of them. Imagine in the stadium, football stadium, and all those people yelling and screaming. And imagine all those faces like some demons or something, you know? And they all trying to get you, all trying to devour you. That's what it feels like. Hallucinations, delusions, a disorganized thought process, all hallmark symptoms of schizophrenia. And they can lead someone with the disease to live in a reality very different from the world as most of us know it. Part of the illness is this poor insight where people really don't understand that they're ill and need to get help, and so often they don't really present for help. Suzanne Killing is a psychiatric nurse practitioner who works for the San Francisco Department of Health and Psychiatry. If you really think about it, you know, I mean, we all sort of operate that way. I mean, in some ways, we all assume that people think a little bit like we do and behave a little bit like we do. We trust what we see is real, what we hear is real, that our brains are interpreting the world accurately, and we act in turn. It's how humans function. You know, the worst thing you can do is argue with somebody about their reality um, because it is real and people do really hear those voices. <laughs> it's a misfiring of the brain. And so, um, you know, one of the things I do say to them is, yeah, it is real. You know, you, you know, you're hearing them. You know, I'm not and it's not a normal experience. 
Helping gain insight or helping someone see a different perspective is a big part of therapy. And in the case of schizophrenia, acknowledging this outside perspective can mean accepting a terrifying conclusion, really a worse nightmare for anyone, that your world is not real, which accounts at least partially for schizophrenia's high suicide rate. On the other hand, some people, like Thomas Jefferson, come to embrace the diagnosis because they see a marked improvement in their lives with treatment. In fact, Jefferson has turned his attention towards pushing others to come to terms with their mental health issues. And when we walking through near 6th Street, just I go through it, my life, I go through it daily where I see somebody who's suffering from some of the same things I do. We're walking near Jefferson's home in a strip of downtown San Francisco, often littered with spent needles and pill casings. Like we're coming up to late now, the lady, she knows her, I know her, and I know she's suffering from some other type of mental health, mental health stuff, not just drugs. I try to give her information about what it is she needs. Can we stop and talk to her? Yeah. We walk up to a woman sitting on a milk crate eating a burrito. She's clearly distressed. Mama, Mama, what's up, Mama? What's wrong? What's, what's the matter? I'm lost in turn out. Okay. Yeah, but this is what this is what my day looked like. This is the kind of thing I do. I pass every day. And I usually shout. always talk to her too. When I see it, I be like, damn. For the grace of God, they go me. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Rena Palta. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.